Welcome to Hartford College's Literary Podcast. I'm Emma Smith. I teach English at Hartford. And in this podcast, I'm meeting uh, some of our uh, literary alumni, people who are writing uh, in all kinds of different genres. And I'm so thrilled to be talking today to Louisa Reed. Uh, if you've got a teenager or a pre-teenager in your life, uh, you need to listen to this um, uh, to hear about what kinds of things uh, they should be reading. And I'm so keen to talk to Louisa about her extraordinary book, Gloves Off, a young adult uh, novel uh, in, in, in a kind of free free verse. It's it's really packs a kind of emotional punch, but it's also formally really beautiful and affecting. Anyway, we will. Uh, I've, I've revealed my hand a bit that uh, I think this is a great book, but I'm really keen to hear from Louisa. But Louisa, welcome. Thanks for being with us. Hello, and thanks so much for inviting me um, to talk to you, Emma. It's such a privilege because I'm a huge fan of you and your podcasts on Shakespeare and your wonderful book um, about Shakespeare, which I'm constantly recommending to my um, six formers and uh, just really, really have enjoyed as well. So it's an absolute privilege to be here. That's fantastic. Maybe next time I'll interview myself, or maybe, yes. maybe you could you could interview me. Um, yes. uh, <laughs> thank you. That's really that's really really nice of you to say so. So, Louisa, let's start with you and you and Hartford. Um, t- tell us about your your Hartford years. What, what how do they seem to you now in in retrospect? Uh, they seem like a very very long time ago. It was 1994 to 97, so we're going back um, a good number of years. I can't quite believe how many years have passed really since those days. Um, it's all still, I, I guess, quite um, a vivid time. Well, parts of it um, are quite vivid. I know terms are short, aren't they? And when I think back on that as well, thinking how much you pack in during those short terms, it's amazing. And uh, the amount of work you do, the amount of reading, the amount of uh, engagement with brilliant literature. Um, and yeah, I, I, I have uh, distinct memories of sitting in my bedroom in NB quad and or was it Warnock house I'm not sure and wending my way through Clarissa and you know just try just try to get there get to the end um and uh, other other exciting things like going to uh, brilliant lectures with John Carey who's um whose book on history of poetry I recently read uh, which was absolutely amazing and it was great to think oh yes I was there in a lecture hall with him once um and the interesting and wonderful um, tutorials and the many fantastic people I met and uh, friends I made and being in a place where, you know, it's not strange to love books and for books to be your absolute life and um, your complete essence. So I think that 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 stays with me, that feeling that uh, everybody who was doing English absolutely had and shared that passion um, and love of, of novels or plays or poetry, poetry especially perhaps. I think um, sometimes because I'm an, I'm an English teacher, and sometimes um, people wonder if other others read as much as they they should do. I don't know. Should it be a a, a mandated thing to to be a reader? But I think for me, um, I can't imagine a life without reading and. Oxford allowed that to be, you know, to to flourish and become even more of a, a part of who I am. That's really wonderful because one of the things I most worry about from um, our, our students of English is that it, it's when sometimes at the end of the course they say, oh, you know, 
that's me, you know, no more of these books now, or, 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 you know, I'd never want to look at another book or something. And I, that, I suppose what I hope is that, that one of the things that degree teaches is that sustaining love of reading that will take people through all kinds of times in their life, uh, mm-hmm. all kinds of experiences. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. And did you, uh, did you want to be a writer? Were you already a writer when you were at Hartford? I think that I always probably wanted to do it. It was something that was always um, a part of my um, enjoyment of reading was also then wanting to be a storyteller too. Um, the the thing is, you you question, am I good enough? Do I have anything to say? Um, how, how can I, you know, how can I ever make it in this this kind of uh, the the literary world, which is a competitive world? Everybody's writing books, um, and but perhaps that that side of things the commercial side of things didn't ever really occur to me until I understood the nuts and bolts of publishing which came some time later um uh, but certainly when I was at Hartford I was writing very very bad poetry um pretty poor lyrics to songs that kind of thing I don't think I was I tried to write a novel while I was an undergraduate I'd had a little go when I was a sixth former but that soon made its way into into a recycling bin or there probably weren't recycling bins then just (laughs) just a basic bin um but yes writing has always been something that I've absolutely loved um as well but the reading came first I think I'm a writer because I, I am a reader definitely and so after Hartford, did you do, did you go straight to do teacher training or did you do PGC, did you do PGC or did you do something else in between? Yeah, I went home for a bit and then I applied to do a, a law conversion. Um, my dad really, really wanted me to because he had his, his he had a sensible pra- practical head on and thought, well, you know, go and become a lawyer and then you've got a, a well-paid job and uh, job security and all of those things and um, but I, the very last minute I thought well I can't possibly do this and I packed my suitcase and got on the train to London and moved in with my boyfriend and then uh, took on a series of absolutely uh, diabolical jobs really um, that were going were going nowhere and then my boyfriend who was by that, that time my fiance got a job in Cambridge and he was uh, he was uh, he is a cytogeneticist and, and he got a job at Addenbrooke's and I thought well we're going to Cambridge I know I'll do a PGCE and I had always wanted to be a teacher actually there's this awful little well my mother would probably say cute picture of me standing beside a blackboard wielding a piece of chalk at the age of about four and looking very stern and uh, and I think that I thought that teaching well again I went into teaching for the books because it was uh, that's what I was missing in that year out of university was um being you know kind of completely engaged in literature again in an academic way not just in a reading for pleasure way um so I I I trained to be an English teacher at Cambridge University for uh, the year did my PGCE and was sent to some interesting schools in um the Fens um, and ended, then I ended up getting a job in one of those schools at King Edward VII in Norfolk and then I went to Hills Road Sixth Form College after that and really enjoyed teaching very very much and I think again it's that I think with with um, some texts you feel like well I certainly feel like you never really know them until you have taught them so I was doing a lot of work with gothic fiction then and taught Frankenstein taught Dracula and various other gothic texts and became really really um, enthusiastic about um, all 
about the way those texts work and how interesting they interesting they are for young people. The motif of uh, um, the double, obviously, is really interesting. And that was my first book, Black Heart Blue, is, is about twins. Um, and that incorporates that doppelganger motif. And it comes out through, I think, that kind of reading. And Frankenstein is something I first did um, at Hartford. And I remember working on that with Tom Paulin, I think. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's all kind of connected and feeds into and feeds into what you go on to do I think. It's so interesting hearing you say you don't really know a book until you have to teach it. I think I would say you don't really know it until you have to teach it at school because I certainly know from my visits to schools where I might be talking about a Shakespeare play I've you know I've been talking about for years and I know pretty well and I know all kinds of criticism about it but I don't have the detail often at my fingertips that, that these students have you know they've been really pouring over it um, yes. and they ask things based on that detail that, that make me think oh yeah okay I need to look at that I need to look at that again you know I can't just talk about it at a distance so it's real it's nuts and bolts isn't it it's it's really close up yes um, that kind of engagement in, in the English classroom yes it is and I love it some students are a bit resistant to it but I think eventually you can make most of them um, get on board with what you're doing if you have enough passion for it um, well, that's what I—that's what I tell myself anyway. Uh, but yeah, the nuts and bolts of the text are very much at the forefront of everything we are doing in the English classroom. It's—it's it's embedded into the uh, assessment, dreaded assessment objectives. Um, yeah. What do you? I don't know if this takes you um, into into different different territory, but I mean, lots of my teacher friends are, feel that the, the GCSE syllabus at the moment uh, for English literature is at least is isn't the way to inspire a generation of keen and, and able and sort of committed readers. Yeah, de- yes, absolutely. I mean, some of the text choices are great. Um, we find that our students respond really, really well to an inspector calls, for example, because it's so applicable to the lives they're living now, the, the ideas of justice and injustice and responsibility for one another. And you can make so much of that feels so current, even though that text is coming from the middle of the 20th century. So it's hardly up to di- up to date, as, as it were. But the, I think the thinking behind it appeals to them a great deal. And also, you can have some fairly good debates um, about the politics, um, too. So that one works well. And Macbeth goes down an absolute treat. I, mean, I teach it in all girls school, but they still love Macbeth and really, really enjoy it. With what I find is it's the, the 19th century novel choices that are that are tricky um we haven't got much time in the in the in the terms to get really into something brilliant like Jane Eyre so you end up choosing a short one we've been doing uh, the sign of four for a long time and I think that that there is a real resistance from from students um now about the representations of race and, and the problematic nature of those representations which we are finding coming through more and more and that's something of which Conan Doyle certainly you can find that within the text um and and we're switching now to Jekyll and Hyde but in it's that also perhaps is teetering on the edge of those things so I would like to do something really really modern with them um but having having said that, I would not want to lose the Shakespeare um, at all, because I think that even though um, that's the, seen as the most challenging, it does produce some really, really fantastic work and insights. Yeah, that's really, actually, really uh, heartening, actually, to hear you sort of talk about the syllabus in that way. I mean, that makes it seem much, much more positive. I suppose we are um, worried 
in Hartford were worried in the English faculty in Oxford about the pipeline of people coming to study with us. And in particular, you know, that's always been a concern. It's always been a concern. And obviously, it's been a particular Hartford concern to think about who's coming to Oxford and who feels able to access that. But now I think we're seeing people who have not opted to do our subject at A-level. And so, you know, can't come, don't have the requirements. And so some of our um, access and admissions efforts are, are, are targeting students you know younger younger in their in their school career that's been a big uh, a big shift for us and so is it your students that you're writing for do you think let's move to your to your own writing louisa are they are they your main readers are they your first readers that's an interesting question i don't i try not to bring my my life as a writer and an author into the classroom very much because i would hate to feel that my students thought that i was had that kind of ego, egotism and um, was setting myself up in some way as um, an ex. Obviously, the teacher is the expert, but it's slightly different, isn't it? And it also the th- thought, well, do we now have to go out and buy Mrs. Reed's book? Otherwise, she hates us. So I let them find out for themselves that I'm a writer. And then from there, if they do read my book and want to talk about it, I, I am absolutely up for that, or books, plural, um, and delighted to do so. But I haven't as yet um, given them my works in progress to, to read and feed back on Um I think I'd be too nervous. A a young adult reader is probably one of the harshest critics you're going to find. I give, I I make my my oldest daughter actually. She's one of my first readers, and she'll give me a pretty honest assessment of things. She won't beat around the bush. She'll say, "No, this is nonsense." Um, I think with with young adults, the key thing is don't you can't patronize you can't talk down to them you have to come from a place where they feel that the voice is as authentic as it possibly can be from a 45 year old woman writing in the in the from the perspective of say a 16 or 17 year old girl or boy or whoever it it might be um so I do appreciate that feedback from my daughters who are are still teenagers um and making sure that I don't uh, put anything in that, that, that they find cringeworthy, I suppose, um, would be a good way of describing it. One of the things that's really emerging from conversations with writers in all kinds of genres is actually how important editing is, you know, um, being willing to listen to feedback and make changes, not being, I suppose, having a clear sense of your own voice and what you want to say but not being too precious or too pig-headed uh not to you know rewrite rework um it sounds like that's been your experience too so some of our uh, guests have talked about a relationship with an editor uh as part of that how, how has your experience of how how has the editorial um intervention worked on your books Yes, brilliant. Um, I I love my um, editor with Guppy Books. Um, she's a she lives in Oxford. Uh, it's an independent um, children's book publisher, um, and Bella is absolutely wonderful. And she worked for many years with a publisher called David Fickling, and then she set up Guppy and uh, a few years ago. And Gloves Off was actually the first book she she published. I originally sent it to her after um, I'd had my first two books with Penguin, and then I. I had this kind of hiatus and I was thinking well where what direction am I going to go in here um how am I gonna follow this up and I, so I wrote 
gloves off, which as you've mentioned is in free verse. And I thought, well, I need a, I need a professional to look at this before I do anything else with it. And at the time I was considering changing agents and all of those kinds of things. So I sent it to Bella originally to say, please, would you um, give me your professional editorial feedback on this novel? And then she said, well, actually, I love it. And I'm setting up this publisher and I would absolutely love to publish this as our first book and I was over the moon it was a really serendipitous moment actually um and she she was hugely supportive in the editorial process I think that um some editors would have said well this is a young adult book you can't have a a mother's voice in this we never have adults and their perspective in young adult fiction so that was a bit of a that was something that was you know slight a slight risk and potentially might put off some young readers but I don't think it has nobody's ever fed back to me that they didn't like Bernadette sections or they felt that they were extraneous to the plot I think in fact they they helped to understand the issues and the the ideas and the the characters um much more fully to get that dual perspective um and Bella just gave me some guidance on sections but something with young adult fiction is you can't get too dark um and I tend towards a, a bit of a a dark um, place sometimes in my writing. So Bella's always there to remind me to 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 bring the light in. And I have a very good friend who's always a, a first reader as well, my brother in brother in law, and he, he worked on Casualty and Holby City for a long time. But he says there needs to be a little bit of twinkle. Yeah, that's so interesting. I looked on um, I looked on Goodreads um, after I'd finished reading Gloves Off to see what people had said about it. And there's one really. That, I mean, I don't know if you're. Um, uh, you're, you're probably too humble to look at to look at those, but I mean they're wonderful. If you ever need cheering up, they're completely completely wonderful. Um, and one, per- but one person says, you know, I I bought this book and then it took me a while to nerve myself up to read it <laughs> because I know <laughs> Louisa Reed's you know books are can be harrowing, uh, and it, you know it begins like that, doesn't it? Let, let's talk about gloves off. So so we've we've said. Uh, already that it's, it's it's published by Guppy Books. It's a, a novel in in free verse from with a shifting perspective. Um, Lily is the main character. She's sixteen, just as the book uh, opens. Uh, she's being um, terribly bullied. She's te- she, she has a terrible time at school. Uh, she's got her dad who's away a lot. She's got her mum Bernadette. Tell us how how do they all constellate for you that that family that family group I think that at the heart of that family group there is a really really strong core of love and mutual support and affection and a desperate desire from each member of the family for the others to be happy um and when they're in the home, I think they find that happiness. But it's when they're challenged and confronted by the things beyond the home that the happiness breaks down. And as a parent, um, certainly you want to protect and your children, I had to do with mine, from the hardships of the world, the slings and arrows. Um, you want to be that person who can stop anything anything from hurting them. But Lily's parents have to understand that, come to understand 
uh, that that's not always going to be possible. And Ber- Bernadette, her mother, wants her to wait things out, to thinks, believes that life will get better somehow one day uh, if we just wait and, uh, next year, things will change. Uh, but Lily's dad takes a rather different approach and says, no, actually, uh, we must act and we, we have to intervene here to help our daughter find a way to stand up for herself and um, feel that kind of self-respect um, and that she can take on the world and, and all of its challenges. So they have a slightly different approach to uh, the way they handle their daughter's um, their daughter's situation, Lily's situation. As you said, she is horrifically bullied for a variety of reasons, um, her weight, her sexuality, um, just because she has become the victim. Um, and then hasn't been able to find a way to speak up and speak out against that. So I think her parents play a really big part, actually, in enabling her to um, to make changes. Um, and one part of that is that her mum doesn't really approve of the, the method that her father has decided will be the way ahead for, for Lily. Uh, and Lily herself is quite reluctant about taking up boxing at the start as well, um, as I'm sure most people would be if they weren't doing it off their own back um, because it's an incredibly brutal and bloodthirsty sport that many recoil from um, but Lily finds that strength and finds that power with the support of her dad and the new friends she makes friends she makes in a way it's about her finding the people beyond the home who are her tribe as well, those other friends who will support her. I think for teenagers, they don't want their parents to be their only support system. Um, they they need people of their own age their, their, and to feel accepted and loved by the, their peer group. Um, it's, it's such an important thing. So for Lily, that's very much her hope is is found in Rose and the other girls at the, the boxing, um, boxing studio where she goes to. Yeah, that's a really uh, lovely description of them, and it and it makes me think that um, you're absolutely. It, it's so interesting to have Bernadette, the, the mum's uh, voice, and to hear, you know, exactly how much she loves Lily and how perfect she thinks, you know, she thinks she is, or you know, how perfect she was as a baby, and 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 how beautiful. But also, Bernadette's. We get a sense that Bernadette's own childhood was marked by bullying don't we and you know she doesn't want this to be to reproduce itself and uh that's I thought that was a really delicately done way of making the parent figure you know someone who's had their own their own stuff their own their their own time Mm. yes yes I really enjoyed writing Bernadette sections um I think she has a um a really poignant um tale of her own and it's only there very briefly but her brother Uncle Ray um, has been responsible for some of her feelings of, of sadness and, and victimization, but also in the workplace, she's she's come across discrimination, um, again weight related. Um, this was that was I was actually prompted to write about that because of something I read in the dreaded Daily Mail actually, um, and it was um, some writer friends of mine were debating on um, debating on Facebook about uh, whether or not they would 
be happy to send their child to a school where um, the or a nursery school or any school actually where the teacher was overweight and one of you know some that was quite a it was quite a heated heated debate and uh, then one of them went off to the Daily Mail and wrote this piece up and was was quoting other writers uh, I, I think perhaps not without asking their permission first. Uh, linking back to this Facebook kind of row they'd been having. Um, and I thought that this was really, really interesting to think how um, we value people and their worth and how we, we measure a human being's worth in terms of so often their appearance and this focus and um, the, um, kind of stress that it puts on young women especially but also young men not to discount them but also women of all ages that you have to look a certain way for society to um deem you as as a valuable person making a contribution um and, and the woman in the, the daily mail was writing on about how she didn't want her daughter to see bad habits and all of this stuff and i thought it'd be really interesting to think about that with with bernadette so this is why she's retreated inside her home she's not coming out anymore because she thinks that the world is a really really hostile place um and i, I love the way that it's through seeing lily and her transformation that bernadette too is um, able to see that change is possible and there can be a movement towards a freer, um, more open life where you love yourself first, no matter what other people have to say about you. And I think that that's, that's something we'd love all our young people to feel about themselves, that they are loved and valued no matter how they look, no matter what their capabilities, no matter um, their weaknesses, that it's okay to be different, not to fit the mould that society has decided is preferable for young women that individuality is an exciting and valuable and worthwhile thing yeah that's that's so true that's that's so important and so inspiring the sort of follow-up to that that I wanted to ask you about I mean about about gloves off but perhaps about young adult fiction more generally as you describe your book and as I've thought about the genre for excellent and important and as I say inspiring reasons it feels it's, it's got a definite message or it feels even sort of didactic or, or even moral in a way Ooh. it's got. Do you feel that that's, is that, is that unfair? And, no. and, or, or is that, is that a problem even? No, um, I agree with you about that actually. And I think it's an interesting thing, really interesting thing. Cause I sometimes think to myself, haven't we left the days of um, didactic moralizing fiction behind us? Shouldn't it be something that's that's very much in the past, and there should be this op- openness and um, the, the the questions at the end that that aren't answered? I think some people have found that the boxing and the violence in um, in gloves off a step too far actually even that they don't like the message that and I don't think it is actually a message that I'm giving that violence is the way to solve all of your problems but it certainly wasn't an intended message that you should just thump somebody if they're getting on your nerves I never wanted to, to imply that this was going to be the be all and the end all uh, but I think some readers may have um, may have struggled a little bit with that so it, it just, just shows you what a line you're treading with these kind of books because um, there is an expectation that there is a kind of value system that is upheld and um, perhaps some questions aren't um, 
the, the ambiguity um, certainly at the ends of books isn't isn't there as much. One of my favourite young adult books is called The Bunker Diary, and this one, the Carnegie Medal. I can't remember how many years ago now. It's it's a good few, um, and that is. Oh, well, I just said my books are dark. They're not, not dark remotely in comparison with The Bunker Diary. And I think what Kevin Brooks does there, he does incredibly well. And he doesn't use the, the, the genre, he doesn't write in YA as a genre in any way to satisfy any kind of moralistic or, or didactic purpose or to give a, re, a give a give a safe, cosy answer to a terrifying and scary, scary situation. So in that novel, a young man um, is bundled into a into a, the back of a van. I think he's at King's Cross Station waiting to meet somebody, he gets bundled into this van, and then he finds himself imprisoned in this bunker. And the, there's no way out. He's not getting out. He's joined by a variety of other characters. The novel follows the, the progress of these characters trapped down there together. And it's a spoiler to say no one's getting out. They aren't. There's, there's no big rescuer coming. There's no knight in shining armour or a policeman um, who's going to come and break down the wall. And it ends in the most shocking and um, appalling way. And there was some outrage when this book won the Carnegie Medal because people thought you you can't possibly um, give this kind of text to young readers. But actually, young readers lap it up it's it's the kind of book that they are intrigued by they want to ask the questions and and see the the darker side of things I think Black Heart Blue was probably my the book that I took the most risks with actually um but I think that the way the that publishing works potentially young adult fiction has become in some ways a place where there is a bit less of that now I'm not I'm not sure oh that's it that's interesting because just as I was hearing you talk I was that was helping me reflect on why I mean particularly in the American school context young adult fiction has become so contested and censored and you know sort of problematic and people because obviously it is a place where values clash and just yeah it was it was interesting what you were saying about your about your own book gloves off and about uh, young people needing to find their tribe outside the home in some ways i think the furore over certain young adult fiction titles is about parents who don't want children to encounter values sort of beyond their own home environment and it's about sort of policing that do you feel a particular do you think you feel more responsibility towards your readers and what's appropriate to them than you would if you were writing adult fiction yeah definitely I think so I think you do have a responsibility as a as a writer for for young people um a responsibility to show as we were talking about the light as as well as the dark um that might not be what the readership would enjoys the most but it's there if they're looking for it um the thought that your book could in any way damage a young person or um make them feel worse in a situation where they were already finding something difficult is a, is an awful awful thought but as you but the the censorship question is so interesting it's very much about about gatekeepers in america parents um and attitudes where i saw something bit on i think it was on twitter and some something's being highlighted about about a school librarian or american school librarian or school teacher who's been put on extended leave because she had in her library 
four copies of um, a book by Juno Dawson, who's a who does who's a brilliant um, writer for young people. And uh, it's called This Book is Gay. And they, they discovered this book in the library. I think it's that one. And um, this was, you know, this was an abomination that this kind of material was accessible to young people within that context. For us, this is, is so important as writers for young adults that they are able to find themselves. Um, young people can find a, themselves or a version of themselves, a mirror in a book, as well as a door or a window or a ladder or whatever else. But as a writer, I feel it's absolutely vital that that material is in the hands of the young person that needs it. But for some um, some groups of people, that's a, a horrifying thought and could potentially damaging them. So I think we've, that, that writers and uh, some gatekeepers are coming at this from very different perspectives. Fortunately, in the UK, I don't think we have quite the same level of um, censorship. I mean, there might be people who would think that uh, The Bunker Diary was a, a bad book, but or a damaging book, but I wonder if there would be a librarian in this country who'd say, well, I'm not going to have that on my shelves. Um, I'm not sure. You'd like to think not. I love that idea of a book being a window or a door or a ladder or a mirror. That's that, that that's an amazing uh, set of, of possibilities. Uh, before we finish talking about your books, I, I, I did want to ask you about the, the that, that formal decision, the decision to write in, in verse. Um, when I heard that this book was in verse, I thought, oh, that's, I mean, I did think that's really interesting, but part of me thought, oh, that's actually, that's going to be a bit difficult to read. But I found it made it absolutely, well, not easier to read because easy isn't necessarily what you want with a book, but more um, inviting. I thought the space around the words, the space around the lines, the kind of airiness in a way of the pages uh, really, really, really brought me uh you know, sort of sucked me into that world. I thought it was an amazingly effective decision. How, how did you? How did you come to that? Yeah, that's it, that's interesting. Um, I've always loved narrative poetry, and um, always loved poetry in general. Never see myself as a poet. Um, always more in terms of the storytelling. Um, and I started writing gloves off in prose, and I just felt reading back over what I'd written I felt well this isn't right this doesn't this doesn't get to the heart of what I wanted to say I don't have the emotional power uh, behind the words that I that I really want and I'd read some other young adults in verse Sarah Crossan and like you I'd approached it with some trepidation those the books that I'd read for the first time I read one of her books I thought to myself oh, I can't I'm not going to like this. This isn't going to be for me at all. But it absolutely was. And before I knew it, I was turning the pages and uh, had finished the book and absolutely delighted in it. And so I thought, well, why not give it a go? I'm going to see if I can do it. I don't know if I can do this, if it's going to work, if I have the if I have the skills, if I have the understanding of the form, but I'm just going to give it my absolute best shot. So I did. I just threw myself at it. And um, it seems to have worked out quite well which is absolutely brilliant um, and I love it now I can't stop writing like that my the book is it so your next book's also going to be in verse well there there is one out already um called wrecked which came out last September that's in verse um then there is uh then there are two more out in verse next year so yes Hopefully, um, I will keep on doing this and people keep on reading them. But there are so many brilliant verse novelists for young adults. There is One of my favourites is an American writer called Jason Reynolds. 
he won Carnegie this year, actually, not for, for a verse novel, but his verse novel that's always stuck with me is called Long Way Down. And it's um, it's an American, he's an American writer, and he's writing about, in that story, a boy whose brother who's been killed in gang violence um, and the younger brother is devastated by this loss. And so he um, goes up to his his home at the one top floor of a, a block of flats and he finds, or apartments, I should say, and he finds his brother's gun in his brother's drawer and he puts it in his back pocket. And he goes over to back to the elevator to go down, back down the elevator onto the streets to wreak whatever revenge. The whole book then is set, apart from that that first those first moments where he's discovering his brother's death, in the elevator, descending down, back down to the street to confront whether or not he will he will go and avenge his brother's death. And as the elevator stops at each floor, a character gets on to the elevator with him and there is dialogue and um and memory and questions and it's just the most brilliantly written book with the most fabulous use of the form I think that I've come across and it's it's just superb I think there's a version now with illustrations as well um I think the illustrator um is a is a British artist but yes it's it's superb so if you enjoyed if you enjoyed my book Emma you're going to enjoy Long Way Down a thousand times more Fantastic, and I'm also going to enjoy Wrecked, which I hadn't, uh, which I had missed entirely. I'm sorry about no, that because I would have loved to have talked to you uh, about it now. But uh, it's great that there's um, other two titles are coming out are coming out next year. Louisa, it's been amazing to to chat with you, and um, you've been amazingly generous about uh, talking to us about the genesis of your books, but also in recommending works by uh, by other writers. Um, before before you go, um, we are asking all our guests about Hartford Library. Um, you may know we've got plans to uh, develop uh, the library. Um, uh, we need more study space. We need uh, more. We need more and better facilities. We need to build back better in that in that phrase. Uh, and I think being away from college during COVID has actually made us all the more clear about you know the spaces we need. Um, uh, for students to to be and to to do their work and to be together, um, do, how was how was the library uh, how was the library for you when you were a student? Do, did you remember sitting uh, sitting in there? Did you ever order pizza there? Could you order pizza in 1994? Was there such a? It would have been quite cool, wouldn't it? Probably not. You'd probably have to go and get it yourself. I would have thought so. I don't remember ever eating anything in, in the good. library. I'm sure that good. that was good. That's good. Uh, it, it, is, it is not correct to eat in the library. Uh, <laughs> Alice Rock, our librarian, would want me to say that. It is not correct. <laughs> it is absolutely not correct. I completely disapprove of that. Um, I do remember being in there, though. Yes, absolutely. Many an essay crisis was spent in the library. I What I particularly enjoyed was picking a book off the shelf and then discovering other people's marginal uh, marginalia you know the, the little annotations where someone's taken issue with something a critic has said in particularly uh, strident terms I always found that quite entertaining um, I, I feel I'm starting to feel very very guilty because I think somewhere in my house I might even have a book belonging to the library, which I better put. Oh well, we we will accept that back with a complete moratorium if you ever do if you ever do find it. Um, I, I love the marginalia as well. There's a book in the English Faculty Library um, 
called The Gay Couple in Restoration Drama. And somebody's written on the title page, NB, this means gay in the old sense. (laughs) Excellent, excellent. I love it. (laughs) Oh, Louisa, it's been really fantastic to talk with you. Thanks ever so much for joining us on the Hartford Literary Podcast. Uh, Thanks uh, too to Hannah Baranzo, who has been uh, producing as always. Uh, Next time, listen in uh, when we'll be chatting with Alex Preston, uh, novelist and critic and all-round literary cricketer uh, and pundit. Do join us then. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye.